Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast in our Superintendent Series. This episode is brought to you by Toro. For more than a century, with cutting-edge turf equipment and irrigation solutions, Toro has had your front nine covered and your back nine too. In fact, Toro's always had your back, period. Toro is as committed to your long-term success as tour pros are committed to their shot. That's down to top-notch customer service from Toro and its dedicated local distributors, both of whom are passionate about delivering turf equipment and irrigation solutions that solve real-world problems. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor today. Today's episode is with Aaron McMaster, superintendent at Orchard Lake Country Club outside of Detroit. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. that help you as a superintendent playing every once in a while? A hundred percent. I mean, I used to play a lot, you know, back when I was 30, 35, 40, and you could tolerate actually practicing and playing, you know, once, twice a week. So, and I was good, not a, not an old hag like I am now, but I think it's a must. I think if you can't play the game, you don't understand how people think when they're out on the golf course, I'm not really sure how you maintain their turf. You know, so it's 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 definitely a key. I don't think you have to be good. Uh, you just gotta you just gotta understand the game and maybe why somebody might be complaining to you that the approach is soft and, and the greens are firm or vice versa, something like that. Um, if you don't play, it's, it's it's tough to understand that. Can you ever think of a, a situation where you had played and you saw something and then you changed it the way you guys maintain it? Not. Like immediately, mm-hmm. because it's it's pretty difficult to change something other than, you know, maybe you went out and you played and you had a few bunkers that you weren't happy with, you know, the quality that would change quickly. But it's more based off of a season long, like we didn't like how this played this season. And, you know, let's start to work on some things to change that. So now if you have some small things that maybe irrigation wise you could change quickly to firm something up or something that you didn't recognize right away yeah that can happen but i feel like most of it is based off of a season long you know evaluation of your golf course and then how your membership changes right like since we've renovated our membership has changed you know quite a bit we have a lot uh, what I, I would say is maybe more players and and they obviously want it firmer and faster and so you can't do that overnight. I mean, you can't just go in and turn the water off. You'll you'll have a lot of dead grass. So you uh, you got to work, you know, your your turf and stuff so that you can give them that kind of condition. But it's definitely drastically different than it was ten years ago. Yeah, I guess I never thought about that. Is that it's not like you can just go out and buy a new rug and change the the way your golf course looks. <laughs> like it takes a lot of time to make a big change on a golf course it's a it's a long-term project for almost all of the all of the changes rather than a short-term fix 
No question. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's a living system. And if you try to do anything too radical to it, you can cause a lot of problems, a lot of headaches. So, you know, you're sort of, you know, dancing with the partner that you got when you, you know, when you get to like June for us in this area and you're kind of stuck in that until you get to maybe like September and you can start doing more work on the, the way you want, you know, your, your sword of turf to, to perform. Those are the times that you can really get after it. When you get to July, it you're at a place where you're kind of, because of the weather, you're just kind of stuck with, you know, this is the way it's going to be for a while, right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can really try to make some wholesale changes with cultural practices and for us, typically late March to early May. And then you're sort of set up for a while. Um, you're, you're, you really don't want to go out and punch holes in the ground or over sand or things like that when it's 85, 90 degrees outside. You just kind of, man- at that point, you're just managing your system to get you through those stressful months. And then you can get back after it again in the fall, September and October, and try to, you know, get towards those goals of whatever your memberships, um, you know, expectations are. And that's really what drives us here. It's not necessarily, you know, my two cents. I mean, we have 300 people here and you got to try to balance across that spectrum, right? Like what's, what's firm enough for the good golfers, but not too firm for kind of your higher handicaps or, uh, uh, you know, seniors, women, things like that. So, you know, at, at a place like this where we have a diverse amount of uh, players, you're, it's, it's definitely a balancing act. You've been here for a while. 22 years. Is it, so Orchard Lake and, and you've been, you know, obviously through a big renovation, but in terms of being here for 22 years, how have you changed in terms of your working with committees like you just talked about where it's not my decision, but you obviously have a lot of input. But how has, would you say over the years your, your approach to working with memberships changed? That is a good question. Uh, I would say, you know, I mean, I was, I was like 30 when I, when I, uh, got the superintendent's job here. So, you know, you think, you know, a lot, you don't know a lot. Um, you're just, uh, you know, I mean, just hair on fire. Hey, I'm going to, you know, just absolutely blow up the world. Right. Um, but I was fortunate. I had uh, a really good greens chairman for my first four years here. Uh, and, you know, we, we kind of sat down and had like concept for what we thought the first like four or five years would go like, cause you, you really can't do these things like in just a short period of time. Like there's gotta be a longer vision. Um, and that's where I feel like the committee as a whole, that, that's like that, that should really be most of their job is what's our, what's our vision. You know, my job is to try to produce that on a day-to-day basis that, you know, the, the conditions play the way that they want. Um, you can't have someone down here asking me if I, you know, rolled the greens today. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's more, they're, they're there to look at, you know, a broader vision of where we're going and, and, you know, what our results are too, obviously. I mean, we get evaluated, but, um, I would say I've gotten a little better at, you know, handling the politics. Um, I think probably all young superintendents at some point, you know, put their foot in their mouth, say something you shouldn't maybe push the envelope a little too far, things like that. Uh, so I, so I've kind of gotten better at just, you know, navigating all that. And, and, you know, obviously we have a a, a way that we want to see the turf, you know, be able to be maintained, which requires budgets and capital expenditures and things like that. 
And that's probably like the biggest difference of what I have a much better handle on now than I did, you know, when I was 30 years old. So when you came here, it, it was it was before you guys did the Keith Foster uh, renovation restoration. I never know what to call, them, but um, <laughs> nobody does anymore. Right? I know it's <laughs> blurred blurred lines. Um, but it, it talk about you know what that project and. Obviously, you know, huge transformation of the club and, as you mentioned earlier, the culture. But talk about going through that process from the beginning to the end and just the value of being here and having, you know, a relationship with the club before you started that project. So I took over in 2001 and um, the club had just renovated all the bunkers in 1996 with... uh, Art Hills. And um, there there were some things that the club didn't necessarily like about the way those bunkers had played. A lot of balls would roll up to the edges of the grass and things like that. So so when we took over, um, we decided to look for a, a new architect. And uh, we settled, the committee interviewed, I think it was about five people, settled on Keith Foster. Way too long ago now for me to even tell you, you know, why we settled on him. But uh, uh, it was, I do remember that everyone unanimously was like, this is the guy. Um, it, it, it helped that I had been here, you know, a little while before that to kind of explain to him, you know, here's what their issues are with the golf course. Instead of just me coming in, an architect coming in right away, and you don't really have a good feel for the membership and what, you know, what are they trying to get done? Um, I, I, I think that that's a tough you know, situation for a superintendent and an architect to get put into is somebody just comes up one day and says, Hey, we want to do a renovation. We're hiring a new architect. We're hiring a new uh, golf course superintendent. And there's no history there. They don't really understand the membership and they just go in and tear the place up. And it doesn't necessarily result in the membership being as happy as you probably could be with a renovation. Well, in a lot of ways you're in, in the renovation process, you're kind of a bridge and you spend the most time with an architect when they're out here. So you're kind of a bridge and an extension of the membership and you know what they want, right? Yeah. You hope you do. (laughs) (laughs) So I would say, you know, between, uh, you know, myself and, and, you know, you, you hope that you have a golf pro that has a good history with the membership that can also, you know, bridge that for you. Um, you know, with, with us, we kind of, we just knew what some of the issues were that we had to get rectified. So Keith uh, came in in Oh two, we did a master plan with him and it really just involved doing the bunkers. Uh, there was going to be maybe a couple of T uh, placement changes and things like that. But for the most part, it was really just to renovate the bunkers. Uh, we didn't get that. We, we, in Oh two, they had a few other projects going on at the club. So we never actually made it to a club wide vote. So it kind of got tabled for a little while. Um, we brought it back up again in 2007 and actually did get it to a vote. Financial collapse, calamity, whatever you want to call it, all you know, transcended on us and, and was probably even worse in the Detroit area than a lot of other areas. And it, it uh, we narrowly missed. Um, so then it really got kind of shelved, just put on the back burner for a little while. Um, you know, you're just really trying to take care of the grass and things like that. And then, uh, in 2011, we decided to bring it back up 
And uh, fortunately, a membership was on board, even though it was still, you know, a little risky financially from a economic standpoint in the Detroit area. But we did benefit from some good pricing on that, and it did pass. And we uh, uh, we did the renovation in 2012. The the benefit of that whole thing was being in contact with Keith constantly, us implementing some of the things, which was I would say 80% tree removal some mowing line adjustments, things like that. Uh, we started to get a little bit different vision of what we thought the the long view of the club should be. So had we renovated in 02 or even 07, the the golf course would not look anything like what it does right now. How, how do you think it would have been different had you done it in 02 or 07 versus doing it in 2012? I don't feel like at that, if, certainly in 02, tree removal was still you know, highly controversial. Uh, by the time we hit 07, we were really only removing enough trees to grow good bent grass. So still not enough to really impact the architectural, you know, look of the golf course. Um, but by the time we reached 2011, when we were going to vote again, there were, you know, mass improvements in memberships, uh, you know, taking to taking out a lot of trees and adding in some fescues, you know, we call them, low maintenance areas but i mean trust me there's nothing really low maintenance about them um but something i want to talk about (laughs) later because i think that's a misconception complete misconception yeah so it but it was you know and we were looking at it from the standpoint of it was going to be more sustainable Uh, we would be using less water less pesticides less fertilizer than if it were big green grass areas Uh, and then you know it adds an enhancement with the color you know, our, our golf course was basically just a big green, you know, patch across the whole 120 acres. And now we have some really great contrast. And I just think it was becoming more acceptable. It was still a hard sell. Trust me. I mean, we had some people who looked at the plan and when they saw that amount of trees gone and uh, whatnot, I mean, they were, they were radically against it. So how many trees did you guys take down roughly uh, i don't know if you want to give a number <laughs> but i, I know uh, having seen before it was it was substantial and i mean i think do, do you think a lot of members didn't know what was under the trees in terms of the, the the scale and the unbelievable movement of this property there's no question that the trees blocked the the majority of the property a lot of the trees that were planted over the years were maples in particular norway maples so they're they're low to the ground, rooty, can't grow any grass underneath them. I mean, it's uh, should just be banned as a golf course tree, right? I mean, it's I've just a terrible tree. I've got one in my tree. front yard. It yeah. drives me insane. Yeah, and you probably would call me and say, well, "How do I grow grass under here?" And you know, I'd say, "Basil pruning." That's how you'd grow grass <laughs> underneath there. But uh, it it really due to that style of a tree, right? You know, they they blocked all the property over the years, and as we slowly started taking some of that out. Even in 02, 03, 04, you know, they, they, people were starting to see it. So it was definitely a radical change for the 2012 renovation. But I feel like a, a large percent of the membership kind of saw the land starting to come out due to the selective tree removal we had already done. Uh, all, all total, I'd say we're probably somewhere, you know, give or take 100 near 1,000 removal. In, in terms of, did you feel like, you know, obviously it's always a very hot topic at a golf course was tree removal. And I'm sure it was the same way here. 
um, as you, was there a momentum that built with almost like every, you know, substantial tree run of tree removal done in like a winter or, you know, I assume a lot of trees people don't even notice are gone. Um, when did the perception start to change? Not until we reopened. Yeah. Matter of fact, the, the, the brutal aspect of our renovation, and, and I tell guys who call me all the time, like, I, you would never do a renovation the way we did a renovation, but we had no choice. It was the only way it was going to get passed and done. So we literally came in and did 80% of the tree removal in January and February. And then we had like the greatest March ever. I mean, it was like 75 to 80 degrees. So nice. We were letting carts out. We had golf going on everywhere. And I've got like 700, you know, dirt patches all over the place. Some of which were going to become like a bunker or native. And it just looked like a war zone. And we went from March all the way until August 1st when we closed looking like that. Well, uh, what were members saying? Was it, was I've, there I've, any honestly, I've, I think I've blocked it all out. Like, <laughs> like, like I, I know there were some rough comments for sure. I, I'm pretty sure at one point, I think we, we, we actually got a letter saying that they wished that they could halt the destruction and, and so on and so forth. So, I, I mean, you know, I always look at it as they do what they do for a living, right? Like they're, they're doctors, lawyers, you know, businessmen, businesswomen, what, whatever they, they do. They're not golf course architects or golf course superintendents or golf pros for that matter. Right. And so it's, it can be hard for them to maybe have that vision of what the end result's going to look like. And unlike say painting your house, right. Where you, you know, guys just show up one day and they paint it and you know, 48 hours later, you're like, wow, this looks great. You know, for us, this takes like, you know, four or five months. So it's, it's, you know, requires a lot of patience on their part. And as much as we would try to explain it's just hard until you actually see the product on the ground. So once we did get rolling, though, and we had about four or five holes done, um, we, we even even some of the members who were highly critical early on said, love it. Awesome. So you get the trees out, then you do the, the bunker restoration, and did you guys do anything with grasses also? We did. We um, methyl bromided... Uh, 17 of the 18 greens, the 15th green, we had, we had a little back step. We had uh, five greens that were rebuilt here in the sixties. And those five greens were built out of a two NS sand, just a really tough environment. Once you started top dressing with finer sands over the top of them to, to grow, you know, good quality turf grass on. So we, uh, I did feel like we had done enough stuff to four of them. So why, why is that? I've just, why is it a tough environment? Yeah, because as soon as you put finer sands over top of coarser sands, they it's just a bathtub. They just hold water up in the top, yeah. and it's and you can't get it to move through. Because the so. the the higher sands percolate faster than the the sand underneath it. Is that no? In that in that scenario, when they first built the green, the two NS sand would perk really fast. Okay, um, like you would you would never use that sand for a green now. No no chance. Okay. Uh, but it was like 1962, 63, 64, right? It's probably, you know, whatever was the cheapest sand, you know, that's, I'm sure there was some philosophy to that, right? Hey, it's sand, just get it, throw it on there. Um, so, but it's like to you, it would literally look like rocks almost. And as soon as we hit the era of top dressing, 
you obviously can't top dress with that stuff. So we, uh, not not we, but the club was using uh, finer sand to put on the greens for regular top dressing. And as soon as you do that, you perch the water table. So now as you build up that sand over the 2NS, that's where all the water is going to stay. And so those greens were a, a struggle. They had moss on them and, you know, they just didn't, they didn't play that great. Uh, but we had been able to do some things to four of them that were acceptable to put turf on, uh, new bentgrass turf. And we had put internal drainage in them, a lot of deep tine aeration to break through that layer. So they actually were draining fairly well. The 15th green, however, no matter what we did to it, we just couldn't get that one to the specs that we knew we'd need for bentgrass. So we completely rebuilt that green. So we have one totally new green. Um, and uh, 17 were methyl bromided, all regrassed. Uh, the approaches were regrassed. The fairways were regrassed. Uh, really, the only thing we didn't get to do was much rough. If it wasn't sodded, we didn't actually have the time because of our small window to kill a lot of rough and reseed it to a quality bluegrass. So we're kind of doing that now with just um, some some uh, tenacity sprays and overseeding. And our rough's gotten a lot better in the last, like, four or five years. So. So, so you spray it and then you overseed it in like the spring or fall, and and rough, yeah, uh, fall, fall. Yeah. 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 We'll do some overseeding again in areas that maybe didn't take so well in the fall. So if if we felt like a spot didn't come in as thick as we wanted it, we'll go out, punch some holes in it, and throw some more seed in there to thicken it up. But it's really been a, a huge improvement. We had a lot of bent grass and poa in our in our roughs, and when you hit late July into August, it gets dollar spot. And it just, it's got that, you know, from a play standpoint, it almost mimics like Kakuya or Bermuda. And it's just gnarly to hit out of when you're mowing bent grass at two and a half inches. It's just a terrible playing surface. It's the worst way yeah. to get, especially around the green. If it's around it. the greens, it's horrible. You just yeah. have no clue how to hit yeah. a shot. None, <laughs> none. I mean, it's just, it's just an awful, awful scenario for, for uh, chipping out of for sure. So. Yeah. I think the best way is to close down the face and just to like know that it's going to come out hot that way because you know it's coming out that way. If you, if you try and hit anything else, I feel like it'll just eat you alive. Oh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> that's, I, I do feel like you know guys who carry like the 60-degree wedge, you don't really have to open the face, right? I mean, you just kind of lay it down square make a reasonably decent swing. And I mean, the ball almost hits you in the forehead. It's going so straight up and, uh, you know, there's no point in opening the face. Like I didn't grow up playing golf that way, right? Like I grew up playing golf where you had two wedges, mm-hmm. you, you got a 52 and a 56. And if you needed to change it, you know, you manipulated the thing, right? Like now, now you talk to these guys and it's like, Oh yeah, I got a, you know, I got a wedge for 82 yards. I got a wedge for 91 yards. And, and then all you do is just watch them chunk it all over the place anyway. And uh, it, it, it just, I don't know. There's some aspects of the game that, that I think some of this stuff has been good for. And then there's other aspects that it's just, it's like, let's, let's just get rid of it. It's, the, this go- golf course is an interesting example because of the, the green locations and, and the scale where it's, it's a bigger scale. And if you're, or if you miss around the greens, you have a lot of times a big uphill shot to the green where that 60 degree is such a huge advantage around a course like this, where, you know, you're, 
you're having it that loft is such an advantage versus a 56 degree it's a being loft fan would be an interesting one because you think about how big of a revolution just the sandwich was back in the day a thousand percent i mean it's it's certainly has changed like our job because now if you don't have almost concrete bricks for greens like these guys can stop the ball virtually anywhere I mean, you know, I don't know what they go up to now, honestly, but I think you can get like a 63 or 64 degree wedge. It's like, it's crazy. You know, I mean, you can almost sit it just straight up in the air with no spin and, and that ball just comes out on a green side chip that it's like dead. Even if the green's 13 and, you know, it's, it's super firm, like these guys can still, you know, play that shot around the green. So that's, there's no question that that's, you know, what's changed the most since I've been here, right? Like, I mean, 10 and a half and reasonably dry greens used to challenge the heck out of even the best players. And that's not the case anymore. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Toro. Two things tour pros hate, leaking oil down the stretch and their caddy having to quiet spectators. Golf course maintenance pros are the same, except they worry about literally leaking hydraulic oil and waking up the neighbors with early morning mowing routines. Toro's new Greensmaster E-Triflex Series Riding Greens mower solve both problems. The engine generator model is amazingly quiet in operation, while the lithium-ion battery model is virtually silent. Both E-Triflex models carry no hydraulic fluid on board using all-electric components for traction, steering, lift, and cutting. This means not only are potential leaks a thing of the past, but noise complaints are too. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo. Now back to Aaron McMaster. You you guys were one of the first courses in Detroit to do like a big restoration, and uh, I'm curious with all these other cor- a lot of other courses have followed suit since. I'm I'm sure superintendents in the area call you and ask you questions about stuff you guys did. And, and obviously you've been around here for a while. I'm curious if, 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 if when superintendents call you, what, what's some of your advice for, for restoration renovations? If a club, if their club or course or is looking into it, what, what do you typically tell them? So you, you are correct. Uh, you know, for the first few years afterward, uh, we did field a lot of calls. Um, I would say most of my conversations revolved around what not to do versus what to do, you know. Um, certainly, I would never do a renovation now and not rebuild all the greens, but we had no shot at that. Um, that would be like first and foremost because, you know, we have 17 greens and in some way, shape or form, Foster touched darn near each one of them, right? Like we knew we were going to be putting a grass on that was going to be faster than the previous turf that we had, going to be firmer. So we had to make some more cupping spaces in certain areas, even though, you know, I mean, you've obviously played the golf course. It's the greens, the most severe greens were rebuilt and they're not that severe. And then the other greens are, they're more subtle breaks or, or they just, you know, can't one direction or the other. Big broad slopes. Yeah. So we had to go into those and just skim like an inch of top dressing off here or there to kind of make that a couple area post uh, the renovation. And, it's it's a pain to maintain you know it's like we don't have 18 identical soils underneath our greens that we know every day i can kind of manage to say like 80 90 percent and they're all similar in firmness 
speed, all of that. We just have, you know, a hodgepodge of all different sorts of stuff. There's in, in our opinion, and this even went through our committee, like there was no chance if we had stuck to our guns to rebuild the greens. Um, there also was some improvements in technology since we did ours that would have helped on selling, rebuilding the greens, uh, that we didn't have access to. So, um, that would be number one. I tell everybody the same thing. Like, don't, don't do, I would never do one of these without rebuilding all the greens. Uh, the second is, um, get your fairway turf in as fast as possible. Our, a lot of our seeding on our fairways didn't occur until mid September to mid October. We ended up with a lot more POA back in the fairways than I would have liked. Certainly been a, a you know, an ongoing battle to try to get that percentage down. Uh, and then, you know, there, I mean, there's a host of different, uh, conversations that I have depending upon the level of what they're going to do. But you know, what we did, I mean, we spent, uh, two and a half million dollars, right. And, and probably got $4 million worth of work out of that project in 2012. I mean, none of these projects go for less than like six, seven, eight million dollars now. So, you know, we're, we're kind of like, you know, the, the small fish, so to speak, like, it's like, I, I wish I got to do that, you know, or, you know, heck yeah, I would, you know, if I had the, the $7 million budget for that, I would do that for sure. Um, so, you know, a lot of them have kind of moved a level above our renovation. So it's, it's not as, uh, it's my, my phone fortunately doesn't ring as much as it, uh, as it used to, which is good. <laughs> good, good, good in one way, bad. You know, it's nice to talk to people every once in a while too. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's, we still don't get me wrong. We're, we we do that. I'm just saying, uh, it was for a couple years, like it was crazy. Like, you know, what grasses did you guys like? You know, what soils did you use? What bunker sands did you use? And, you know, all that stuff is so preferential to the golf course and the and the membership, right? Like, what you know, when, when we first did our bunkers, we um we did a sand called elite pro angle and it was 50% pro angle and a, and a 50% byproduct called 1600. And it was in comparison, like a loose sand, right? Your ball wouldn't necessarily fried egg, not to have any pun pump, in this uh, thing, brand. but, um, <laughs> uh, we need more sand to give more fried egg. You eggs. need more fried egg lies. Uh, but it was difficult to spin the ball out of, right? So it was it was easy to just jam your club in it and get the ball to go flying out of the out of the sand, but to actually you know the better player, it was a very difficult bunker to hit out of. They hated it. So two years in, we pulled it all out and went to just pure pro angle because, as I said before, we started getting a lot more uh, low handicap players and they liked to be able to spin it. So they wanted the firmer sand. And honestly, it was quite the maintenance headache for us. Um, I mean, we worked our tails off to try to make that elite pro angle as good as we could. And it, it was just a difficult sand to work with. And we, uh, so we were on board with the change as well, but it was, let me tell you what, it was a lot more difficult bunker sand. If you hit it in the bunker, it was almost a virtual guaranteed bogey. One might say that that was better bunker sand. I'm not, I don't want to. You're not going to weigh in. I, I, well, <laughs> Yeah. As most people would tell you, I definitely have an opinion on everything. Um, I would say that uh, it, it was probably a little overkill. We went as far as the amount of things we threw at our membership in one shot. That was maybe too much, right? Like yeah. they they you know came in playing this parkland treeline golf course 
grass-faced bunkers and suddenly we're throwing 120,000 square feet of bunkers hand at them, these intimidating faces, fescue. Um, we were, the bunkers were intended to have long eyebrows of fescue around them. And then we throw this, you know, ultra difficult bunker sand in the bunkers. And it was probably just a little bit too much. So, uh, with the, you talking about the greens and rebuilding greens, it, I just had a quick question. Is what you're describing, it, you kind of have like 18 greens, each with their own unique personality that you have to deal with on a daily basis? Correct. Versus if you build and, and, them all. And there will actually be areas within that green that are unique, right? So like our 10th green is a perfect example. Uh, the right side of it was too steep to put any cup. So Keith, literally, we went to the half point of the green, stripped all the sod off of it. Because when you're methyl bromiding, you traditionally don't tear the sod off. You just kill it and then beat the living you know, bejesus out of it to get that mat down as low as you can, and then you just seed right into it. Um, we wanted to be able to create some potable areas on the right side of that green. So we had to core it about five inches down. So like the right half of that green has mix that is the exact mix that's in my 15th green that's total USGA spec, whereas the left half is 80 years old of sand top dressing and aerification. So they totally react completely different. And to try to get the impact of a ball to match up, you know, between that right side and that left side is extremely difficult. How do you try and do, is it, do you apply more water? Moisture management is like the best way. Yeah. Uh hundred percent. And then you have like sensors that you're able to monitor that or how do, how do we you use do a handheld TDR uh, probe? That's so, a little thing that they... purple thing that yeah. you see probably everywhere. Now guys walk around, they hit it, hit the button and it gives you a volumetric, you know, water content reading. So, yeah, it's a cool little device. It's, it's, uh, it has helped. And then in some instances it hurts. Uh, you know, I, I came up the old school, you pull a core and you see what the core looks like. Cause you know, you, you, you really have to water where the roots are. Like there's no point in watering where there's no grass roots. So if you take that probe and you're taking a, say a three and a half inch sample of the moisture, but you only have an inch and a half of roots, you know, you're, you're not really getting a valid reading to help you grow your grass. And you don't know that unless you're taking a core. You know, if you don't pull periodically pull a, a plug out of the green or something and see what your roots look like and things like that, you you don't know exactly where you should be watering. So they are they're they're very good. I would never get rid of them, but you still have to go out there and manually look at what's underneath the uh, turf. We talked just touched on it earlier uh, the fescue that you guys have. And, I mean, it's absolutely stunning. I think that it, you hit on it the texture and the color that it gives the golf course and the pop and it really helps accentuate the property i think but also the playability of it and you know you're not i i had a buddy and who we used to play a lot of golf and in we would he kind of a little bit more crooked than i am and we'd go certain places i'd say we're just gorse hunting all day you know (laughs) spent my i hate looking for golf balls i hate it same here. I don't ask for help looking for my balls because <laughs> I don't want people to ask me for help looking for theirs. <laughs> and, uh, and but you know you've got your fescue where it looks great and it plays great, which I think the playing the playing great is one of the most difficult things. Talk about 
management and obviously you've had it now for almost 10 years but what you've learned over the years uh maintaining that that fescue grass that you know is now seems to be everybody's trying to add it in to their certainly the uh you know it's the popular thing these days for sure we have learned a lot since we put it in um i would say we thought we knew some things when we put it in and we probably have learned, you know, 20 times more now than what we did just researching it before we ever started. Um, the number one issue is I would strip any of the areas that you're going to go in and you're going to put fescue in because if you've been growing grass on those, you've got years and years of organic and fertilizer and everything built up in that system. And if all you do is go in and like round it up, scalp the grass down, punch holes, seed your fescue in there. I mean, fescue on fertilizer is nasty stuff. I mean, you can't find your ball. You can't hit out of it. Nothing. Um, of course, that's how we did it, right? <laughs> so uh, it was for how, us, though. I feel I, like that's how everybody learns. I, I know. <laughs> I know. Well, in, in, a, in, in a little bit of, of our defense, um, we, we knew that that would have been the better way to do it. We just couldn't afford it. You know, and we sort of felt like there were better things to spend our money on anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, nobody gets an unlimited budget. So you have to pick and choose what you still think are the best things that you're going to go spend your money on. Stripping all the fescue areas just wasn't, you know, in the cards for us. And at the time, 90% of it was supposed to be really out of play, right? So it was just more an accent. So what, what, who, who really cares if it's not that thin and wispy? Uh, you know, you're not supposed to hit your ball in there anyway. Well, some of it did start to, as we, as we matured and, and more areas got brought in by, you know, Keith, we got some areas that they needed to be thin because you could definitely hit a ball in there for sure. And I would say it took us about three to four years to burn the organic and the old fertilizer out of those areas. And we're just now starting to hit where I feel like it's really good. Um, some things that we learned, we literally scalp the bejesus out of it every fall. We mow it like three times now, and I try to go about as low as our mowers will tolerate. So we go in there with uh, you know the, the industrial zero turns, set them down to like an inch and three quarters. Not the first time. You got to kind of hack the, the stalks off and clean that. You know, we vac that up, take any organic material out of it because anything breaking down will add to that nitrogen system. Uh, so then the next hack, we get it down to about three inches and then end of the season, we go like scalp level and then we scalp it again in the spring. I mean, we're talking chunks of grass flying out of the thing, right? Like, I mean, we're just trying to literally pull plant material out and then we send a, a vacuum in and we vac that stuff all up. Um, that's helped us a ton. And uh, for a couple of reasons, one thinning the plant out when we go in with our sprays, you can really get better penetration of your your uh, pre-emergence your herbicides things it like doesn't that doesn't sit on the grass correct yeah that you know technically sense. a lot of these like the pre-emergence should really get some level of water to get them down in and create that good barrier well i mean the last thing you want to do is turn any water on in those areas so you're trying to keep them as dry as you possibly can the better you can go in with like a, a good wa water volume on your spray get the penetration because the canopy is just not as thick We've been, we've in the last two seasons, we've seen just an immense improvement in weed control. Um, 
they uh, they brought out a, a couple new uh, herbicides that have kind of helped. And really, we're now down to our, our biggest issue is just controlling some quackgrass in some areas. That is, that is the, that's the nastiest uh, weed that we deal with, without question. Yeah. And if, you, if, a, if a native section gets taken over by quackgrass, you might as well just kill it and start over. Because it, you can't find your ball in it. You can't play out of it. It's just it's terrible. It's a terrible uh, you know, scenario to have in your native. I mean, you, in, for the golfer, I mean, you look at some of these and it's like, it's like an ocean of grass, you know. How do you know when quack, do you, do you, how do you monitor that stuff? Like, do you walk through it? Do you have somebody walk through it? Or is that like, how do you know it's when It's pretty quack easy grass? for us to, to spot quack grass. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I showed it to you once, you'd, even you would be able to spot <laughs> quack grass. You know? I've got this weed problem at my house, uh. It's a uh, pokeweed, pokeweed, <laughs> pokeweed, and it's driving me insane. How I did you identify that, by the I, way? What? How did you identify that, by the way? Uh, plant snap. <laughs> I took a Does that actually tell you how to kill it? No. Well, then I just started well, pulling it out. That's not good. Out. Then what's the? What, who cares? Dig, I have to dig it out. You got to dig it out. It's got these big roots. If I just pull it out, it just like regrows. Pokeweed. I got to be honest with you. I'm going to have to look that one up because I, I, I can't say that my uh, my wife my weed I'm knowledge crazy. is I'm up like to digging, that level of snuff. Holes pokeweed in, holes in our, in our uh, <laughs> like mulch beds all the time. They get these uh, these big. They look like carrot roots when you pull them out. Really? Oh, it's it, it's awful. I I have. I know when I get home, there's going to be like five more of them that have grown up. They get, grow up out of nowhere. It's, it just drives me crazy. I'm gonna, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna figure out a game plan for you. I'll let you know how you how you get rid of pokeweed that you don't have to dig it up. Well, my wife doesn't let me use fertile. Uh, doesn't let me spray anything. Anything? No. <laughs> <laughs> then I would just let the pokeweed grow. Well, it is so it drives <laughs> so me crazy. If we're all natural, then just I mean, whatever grows in there grows in there. Sorry, honey. Well, I, it would drive me crazy. So, um, so you play a lot of golf in the winter. Yep. What have been your your favorite trips? Um, and, and maybe what's what's been a trip that opened your eyes to something about golf that you didn't really appreciate before? Um, so you know, I would say to start at the back end of your question. When I first got here uh, as the uh, superintendent, there was a group of guys that would always go uh, in September and they would play Marion Golf Club. And like around about my second or third year here, they invited me to go. And it was uh, like a a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So you get three rounds of golf at uh, Marion Golf Club, right? And, you know, to that point, I was just some... You know, stupid, you know, dumb kid. I'd done, you know, some internships, worked on golf courses, things like that. And you're like, oh yeah, you know, I, you think you know a lot, and then you get to go to a place like that, right? And you and you just see the history, and I mean, it's just, uh, it's still an amazing place to me. I haven't seen it in a few years. Love to go back and see it after the renovation. Um, but I, I feel like that left a, a lasting impression on me to show, like, this is what some great architecture you know, can look like, and it doesn't require to be on like a huge piece of land and, and, you know, have trees all over the place and things like that. So I feel like that was a pretty eye-opening experience. Um, 
and told me that, hey, I want to get around and see a whole lot more. There's obviously like a lot of things to see in the world and not too just many. in Detroit, right? Yeah, 100%, 100%, way too many. Um, so I feel like that started it, right? And it also uh, caused me to fall in love with East Coast golf. Like I, I still, I've certainly played a lot of golf probably in about every place that they would say are the best of the best with the exception of the sand belt in Australia. And I still feel like that's the greatest concentration of awesome golf there is. Um, it, 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 you know, to, to give you the best example, I, I had a trip there once in the fall and we played garden city men's club, uh, national Shinnecock, the country club, eastward ho, and then we got one whole day on Fisher's Island, like sun up to sundown. And hands down, greatest golf trip I've ever been on. I mean, it, it, it was just awesome. You know, it was one of those things where like the weather was perfect every day. Uh, the company was awesome. The people we met, um, I mean, it was just, it was a trip of a lifetime, right? And to see those just back to back to back to back, right? And, and just study kind of, you know, what, you know, how, 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 how did they intend these golf courses to be played? Um, you know, how the guys are maintaining them. It was just, it was, it was special, right? Uh, I, I, I just love it out East. Like, I, I just think it's, it's the best of the best. I end up in Florida a lot. Um, Arizona, California, cause of the winter You're playing in the winter. Yeah. And, and so, you know, not to disrespect anybody on your podcast, but it's like, there's not a ton of like great arch- I mean, you don't go to Florida to study architecture, right? No. Um, I mean, Seminole is awesome. You certainly could go there and study the greens and, and angles and things like that hundred percent. But I mean, that's so rare in Florida, right? I mean, that one and like mountain Lake are my two favorites in Florida. And you definitely can learn some things there, but you know, the rest of them, you just, you know, they're, they're fun to play. It's nice Hybrid weather. Bermuda greens are awesome to putt on. Yeah. The weather's stellar. Um, and you're not here in the snow. So that's all great. But but I do it more just to recharge the batteries and and stop thinking about, you know, what kind of uh, summer we got coming up for us and, and so on and so forth. So When do you start thinking about summer? <sighs> I mean, I'd love to tell you that you never, that, that, or that you actually do stop thinking about the summer. But, uh, you know, you probably get about a good six weeks, really, where you're, where you're not thinking about some level of grass. You know, it, it does get annoying. I've got to be honest with you at times. Like, you're just like, got to get that out of my head. So you get about six weeks of break where, you know, you can recharge and, and you're like, I'm ready to go for, for next season. And when's the, when's the date that you, like, feel like you're, you're in the home stretch of, like, where you don't have like the big problems of summer. So I, there was an old superintendent here that was around for probably like 40 years. Right. And, uh, I'm not going to say his name cause then he would, he'd just like really think he's the top dog. But, um, <laughs> anyway, it was always April 14th or I mean, uh, August 14th, sorry. August 14th was always the, you really can't kill any grass after that day. It doesn't matter how bad the summer is. Like August fourteenth was that cutoff date, and I'll be honest with you, he's he's been pretty accurate. Like once you hit that, you know the days are so short that even if you have some turf that's a little stressed, like aerations right around the corner, um, you know some lower humidities, things like that, 
I mean, it's it, life. Life starts to get pretty good by the end of August. So. National Midwest Superintendents Day, August fourteenth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. August fourteenth. Uh, now there are some issues with that though too. Like we have our men's club championship is after that. And if you get rain, it's hard to drive the golf course out in that period of time, right? Because the days are so much shorter. So it's it 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 can have a an effect on the playability. That. But um, it it from my life of actually killing grass, it's it's a lot better. But yeah, you you definitely struggle to drive the golf course out better in, in late August because of the short days and sun angles are you know vanishing in a hurry. Yeah, I never thought about how it and. I, it makes complete sense like why rain affects golf courses in terms of, of, of firmness so much more in the spring and the fall is just because of the length of the days yeah yeah i mean your your top time to really at least here in the midwest for us i'm sure the east coast guys are pretty similar best chance you have of providing the best conditions is the month of june you got the longest days even when it's hot it's typically the the humidity is is lower and uh you can you can really crank on it. I mean, you can get some fairways that are just bouncing like crazy, and yeah, that's that's your month. Like that that, and, and I I would assume that's probably why the U.S. Open is in June. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. although now we're obviously moving it all over the place. But I mean, I'm thinking back in the day when they chose sites probably based on something like that. With the you went through the financial crisis and you went through this. How have they been different for your your job? What's this? Uh, coronavirus. Oh, the, the coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, boy, that's a that's a, an interesting question for sure. Um, I sort of feel like I, I've you know even though you know I, I I was still I don't know not that old when the financial crisis happened. Um, I'd been through like good and bad economic times, right? Like even growing up. And you kind of recognize, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, you read things, people getting laid off, stuff like that. Right. So, I, I mean, I, I had a, a, a history to say that lasts a little while and then, and then we pop back. Right. So it was bad in 2008 and certainly some things happened to people that you wouldn't have probably expected, but I still feel like it was something that I had a known you know, history with this thing is just, uh, this is like the craziest thing I've ever had to live through. Um, I mean, never in my life did I think that we would all have to be, you know, shut in our houses. Although, you know, we, we still had to mow the grass. So we technically weren't shut in the house other than, um, when you got home, I mean, you couldn't go have dinner or anything like that. But, uh, I feel like there were a lot more uncertainties yeah. And then it's the, you know, it's the era of Twitter and Facebook and, you know, 24 hour news cycles and, you know, people just watch and get on too much of this crap. You know, I mean, I realize that this is, you know, no, that, I, that Instagram and, and Twitter, you know, uh, help uh, put food on the table for you. But well, though, and, 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 I, and I, I've, I have to get myself off there. It, you can you just get on there and you start reading it. I've noticed in the in the especially um, when the weather wasn't good, and, I mean, I'm sitting in my basement and I'm, and I'm just reading and it's just like, you just get yourself into this spot where it's like, God, I, and I think that's, I mean, and that's why we're seeing unparalleled, uh, demand and popularity of golf is it's, 
so nice to have something that gets you away from all your screens and and away like from the world for a little while i think that's what helped us as as far as i'm sure most superintendents would probably tell you that like if i had been stuck just confined to my house i think i would have gone crazy so the fact that we could you know get outside even though the weather wasn't very nice for us while we were in in shut down here you didn't focus on that stuff. Like I didn't have time to see, you know, what they were saying on, you know, the news or Twitter or Facebook or things like this. So, so, you know, to us, um, the first like week was the strangest thing I've ever experienced. I mean, to be out here working, have no noise, no traffic, literally this road here, you know, you could walk across and not even look. Um, it was, it was like the zombie apocalypse, so to speak. And that aspect was really strange. But once we got into our flow and started understanding, you know, what we had to get done every day, it, it was way more helpful than, than being confined to your house and just sitting there and just staring at, you know, what was just horrible news every day, right? I mean, hour by hour, it's like, man, this is, uh, this is just terrible. Even So, we, you know, we, we worked seven days a week, but on the weekends, it was a lot less in March and April. The weather wasn't... Uh, stressful for us so I mean if I went home to even turn the news on for like 10 minutes it was like oh my god like I I couldn't do it like I just literally couldn't do it so I would I would not watch that I would maybe watch a Netflix of of something you know that uh, uh, ilk but I kept up enough so that I knew what we were supposed to be doing our precautions that we were supposed to be taking with our staff and things like that but beyond that I just I couldn't sit there and like watch Andrew Cuomo give a a friggin' you know, update every day like that. No way. I don't want to watch anybody do that. I, I don't care what the subject is. If I got to watch somebody do the same thing every single day, no, doesn't work for me. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, I think that's like di- diversions were were the best. And being outside, and you were probably short staffed, so you had more work than ever before. <laughs> So that's the other thing, is, you know, work is a great diversion, regardless. It, it is. And, and certainly when you have, you know, eight people on 150 acres, I mean, you know, every day I'd be looking around and go, we're not getting a you know, damn thing done. Like, what's the problem? And then I'd look around and go, yeah, it's, it's a big place for eight people to try to take care of. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was an interesting stretch. So I, I feel like, you know, the, the, that's the difference is this was just totally uncharted territory. Um, uh, whereas the financial collapse, it, it just was a little more uh, knowledgeable history to having gone through recessions before and things like that. So, yeah. 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 Well, I uh, appreciate the time and uh, everybody that gets a chance to come see your spot. It's a, it's a, special place it's one of the best in in detroit one of the best in the midwest and uh people can find you on twitter you're you're on twitter yeah they can find me on twitter i don't really i don't really say much you know yeah. you can get in too much trouble these days by saying they can, anything they can so. talk to you though they, they can, can talk to me they can at you I, they can they can, <laughs> they can at me for sure <laughs> yes yep i'll 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 uh i'll respond 100 percent. but i appreciate that yeah. it's a it's a fun place it's been a great place to work for the last uh, 20 odd years and um, you know hopefully uh, we got some uh, more fun things coming.